Hi everyone, thank you for joining us online. When someone says, I don't believe in God, think about responding, which God is it that you don't believe in? Because the God described by so many people doesn't look much like the God I see in Jesus Christ. So close your eyes, picture God. Is he smiling? I hope by the end of the series, you will be. Thank you for joining us as we discuss our good and beautiful God. Paradigms are powerful things. You can see it in our self-talk. If a child lives with criticism, they're gonna learn to condemn. If you had a father who was especially stern and a disciplinarian, who could never be pleased, you'll find that you struggle with that yourself and how you treat your children. And don't be surprised if you see God that way. The stories we tell ourselves about who God is will inform who we think we are and in turn, will color how we see everything else in the world. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. I'd like you to close your eyes. Yes, you. Close your eyes. I want you to picture... God. Really zoom in. I know what you're picturing. Does he have a human face? Is he old or young? Is he sitting, kneeling, standing? Look at his face. Is he is he frowning? Is he smiling? While you're focusing on his face, I want you to think about the feelings that are welling up inside you right now, the emotions that you have when you think about God, and see if you can identify it. What is that primary emotion that you're feeling right now? Is it fear? Joy, bewilderment, anticipation, worry, pain, love. Okay, open your eyes. I wonder if you can think back to some event, maybe in your early childhood, that can best explain why that picture and that feeling came to you. We all have moments in our life that are transformative. There are stories in scripture that come to our mind first and foremost over other stories when we think about who God is and it defines him for us. Stephen Covey wrote a book years ago called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And in that book, he tries to describe what he calls a paradigm 
shift. And he says, I want to explain to you what that is by telling you a personal story. He said, I remember a mini paradigm shift I experienced one Sunday morning on a subway in New York. People were sitting quietly. Some were reading newspapers, some lost in thought, some resting with their eyes closed. It was a calm, peaceful scene. And then suddenly, a man and his children entered the subway car. The children were so loud and rambunctious that instantly the whole climate changed. The man sat down next to me and closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to the situation. The children were yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing people's papers. It was disturbing. And yet, the man sitting next to me did nothing. It was difficult not to feel irritated. I could not believe that he could be so insensitive as to let his children run wild like that and do nothing about it, taking no responsibility at all. It was easy to see that everyone else on the subway felt irritated too. So finally, with what I felt like was unusual patience and restraint, I turned to him and I said, Sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you couldn't control them a little more. And he probably thought to himself, I am the hero of the subway at this moment. The man lifted his gaze as if to come to a consciousness of the situation for the first time. And he said softly, oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. And I don't really know what to think, and I, I, guess, I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Covey writes, Can you imagine what I felt at that moment? My paradigm shifted. Suddenly, I saw things differently. And because I saw things differently, I thought differently. I felt differently. I behaved differently. My irritation vanished. I didn't have to worry about controlling my attitude or my behavior. My heart was filled with the man's pain. Feelings of sympathy and compassion flowed freely. Your wife just died? Oh, I'm so sorry. Can, can you tell me more about it? What can I do to help? Everything changed in an instant. Paradigm shift. It's when someone or something triggers you to see the whole picture in a brand new light. It doesn't just change you and transport you into a different mood, but into a whole new world. Jesus does that over and over again in the scriptures. Do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? That title was really hard to imagine in the first century. They had all kinds of stories about being good to other people and then encouraging you to be like them. But they didn't have a story, not among the Jews, of a good Samaritan. And it was supposed to hit you right between the eyes. If you hear the story now and you say, yeah, yeah, he's a good person, we should be like that. Then you didn't hear the story the way you were supposed to hear it. So let me try it a little differently. It's kind of like if an army chaplain 
is speaking to a group in Baghdad as they're about to leave on a convoy, and they say, oh, one more devotional. You see, there was an army serviceman who had stepped on a landmine, he and his whole group, and the group died, and he was severely injured and was on the side of the road. And some army cadets came by and thought it was a trap, so they went on. And then some officers came by. They thought the same thing, so they went on. And then a Taliban member, moved with compassion, saw him lying on the side of the road and took him to his own house and nursed him back to health and then drove him to the edge of where the army base is and dropped him off with food and money and a list of people he could go see for help. Now, go be like the Taliban. That's how the story was supposed to hit you. It's a paradigm-shifting story. Jesus does this in parable after parable, and we see it in gospel after gospel. Paul believes in it so much, you see him when he's blinded by the light, and it changes him forever, and he becomes a different person. We see it in Peter. Peter, who is always sticking his foot in his mouth, Peter who denies Jesus three times when the rubber meets the road, and yet in Acts chapter 5, he won't stop preaching, he won't stop speaking, and they say, we're going to beat you, we're going to put you in jail unless you stop, and he says, you do whatever you got, I can't help but what I've seen and heard, I must speak. Something has changed him forever. Paradigms are powerful things. You can see it in our self-talk. If a child lives with criticism, they're going to learn to condemn. If you had a father who was especially stern and a disciplinarian, who could never be pleased, you'll find that you struggle with that yourself and how you treat your children. And don't be surprised if you see God that way. The stories we tell ourselves about who God is will inform who we think we are and in turn will color how we see everything else in the world. There are several paradigms about God that are alive and well in our world today. All of them deeply inform how we see each other. All of them can be found in books and movies and novels and sermons and Bible classes and podcasts, atheist bestsellers, and top 10 Christian books. And some of these are terribly misguided. When you hear news reports that Gallup announced for the first time ever in its history of polling, church attendance in America has dropped below 50%, which is true. When you hear the rise of the nuns, that's the group that checks none of the above on the survey of what is your religious status, is the fastest growing group in America, which is true. When you hear that the new atheists tout convert after convert to atheism as Christian believers' numbers dwindles, which is true, I can imagine a desire to redouble, retriple, requadruple our efforts to do exactly what we've been doing, but just harder. But may I suggest that it's worth pushing pause for a second. It's good to consider two reflective questions. Number one. What is it that those who no longer believe in God no longer believe in? And number two, 
who exactly is it that we've been trying to convert them to? Tom Wright was a chaplain at the University of Oxford, and every year, new students would go and listen to a sermon as he would begin, and then the idea was to keep coming to chapel. But after a while, he got so used to hearing the same thing, he says, that every once in a while, students would leave, they'd thank him for his sermon, and one would say, well, listen, you're not going to see much of me because, you see, I don't believe in God. And he got so used to that, he developed a stock response. He would say, oh, really? Which God is it that you don't believe in? And they'd have to think for a second. And then they would begin to describe. That's an old man in the sky. Could care less about what's going on around here. In fact, he wound up the world. Now he's just sitting back and watching it burn. And he sometimes, if people try really, really hard and pray really, really hard, he'll help you get over a splinter. But if you don't, he'll give your kid cancer. And that God... That guy's just waiting around for people who have naturally good temperaments to go be with him forever, and those with bad temperaments to be away from him forever. And Tom Wright would look at them and say, that's really interesting. No wonder you don't believe in that God. I don't believe in that God either. And he said they'd get a little smile on their face because they'd think, you're a closet atheist, aren't you? And then he'd say, no. The God I see in Jesus Christ is altogether different than one you just described. The God I see in Jesus Christ I think that non-believers sometimes get their view of who God is from believers. Michael Buckley wrote a book called At the Origins of Atheism and he makes the case that modern Christianity has a hard time answering atheists because modern Christianity produced modern atheism. The argument goes like this. We got so used to thinking about what we could do, and we're so excited about human ingenuity. We've got a Bible. It's got a bunch of rules. We've got a good head on our shoulders. We've got good abilities. But we need God for all the things we can't figure out. Well, it just stands to reason it wouldn't take long before we begin to fill all those gaps that we used to use God for. And as those gaps got filled, we didn't need God to explain how we get water from heaven now that we know the water cycle. We didn't need God anymore to say, well, somebody's got to be pushing the planet. Now we kind of figured out how gravity works. So as we fill the gaps, who needs God anymore? So what did Christianity do? Well, for a lot of people, what Christianity did was we moved God away from the need in the world, away from defining him in the most healthy ways, in which what we mean by God is what we mean by beauty and truth and goodness. And instead, we moved him to the periphery and said, well, he's the one not involved in the world, but he's the stern judge you're going to meet at the end of the world. You can't touch him, no. But you also have a hard time understanding what in the world do you need him for now? Just take a look at the modern church. I once heard a preacher say that if it came up and we were actually able to prove somehow that God showed up dead, we'd still go to church because that's where we meet our friends for brunch. It's just a part of our life. It's what we do on Sunday. But that's not the only paradigm 
that non-believers might have got from Christians. There are two very, very popular views of God that are out there that I would like to address in this series. One, one is the view that God could never possibly be angry, upset, or sad about anything you ever do. It's a God who is a Santa Claus. No offense, Tommy. It's the God who anytime you want to do something, he thinks it's great. And whatever your desires tell you you want, he's for it too. It's when we make God in our image. And folks, there are people who think that way, and they need to be told that's not who God is. And we're going to talk about that. But there's a whole nother paradigm that's also very popular, one I know all too well. And it's a paradigm in which good, honest, sincere, hardworking believers, when they hear the word God, the image that comes to their mind is a fiery hailstorm and a pillar of salt just outside Gomorrah. They picture a man named Uzzah touching a holy ark and being struck dead. They picture Nadab and Abihu who displeased the Lord with their strange fire and suffered death as a result. They picture Ananias and Sapphira and they picture the all-seeing eye. It's always watching them. And armed with these stories, read without context, they take this God to the world, and those who respond, respond with, I have to. I, I guess if that's who God is, I guess I have to. And nobody responds with a want to. It makes a God who demands total allegiance while fulfilling absolutely none of our deepest heartfelt desires, which, by the way, God gave to us. It makes humans an afterthought, a terrible nuisance in the story. And it colors how we see ourselves and how we see the world. When I was a kid, I was not afraid of a boogeyman. I was not afraid that there was some, uh, uh, some monster under my pillow or under my bed. I was scared to death of the all-seeing eye that was watching me. I had no idea that the language of omniscience in the Bible that says that God is everywhere is not primarily meant to scare you half to death when you're on a date. It's primarily meant to tell you that there is no pit you can fall into that's so far away that God can't pull you out. Listen to Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? If I go to the highest heavens, behold, you are there. If I make my, my, my home in the grave, behold, you are there. You're there to guide me. You're there to uphold me. Psalm 23, whether I'm on green pastures or in the valley of the shadow of death, I know you are with me. What God is it that these people don't believe in? And who exactly is it that I've been trying to convert them to? A few moments ago, I asked you to picture God the Father. I wonder now what picture comes to your mind when I say the name Jesus Christ. I ask only because for Christians, Jesus is God. He came to show us the Father. It's so common these days to hear people talk 
when they read their Bible. They talk, they don't usually say it this way, but they think this way. They say, well, I'm not, I'm not too keen on God the Father. I mean, he's the one pictured in the Old Testament, right? He seems like he's always mad at something, waking up on the wrong side of the cloud. And then, and then one day, somewhere around the middle of the Bible, the New Testament, he becomes a Christian. Now I kind of like him. But the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the same God who tells us the Ananias and Sapphira story in the New Testament, also tells us about a whole nation that I don't think you could find a comparable bad nation as Nineveh with a king who doesn't even know God's name. Who says, God, if there is a God, if you're out there, if you can do something, maybe... Maybe you'll relent, and God says, oh, I've wanted to hear that all my life. And there's only one person in the story who's upset about it, and it's Jonah. A few years before The Passion of the Christ hit the movies, an actor was chosen to star in a different Life of Christ movie. And on his way out the door to film, he asked his four-year-old daughter, hey, I'm about to go film and play Jesus. Got any advice for me? And his four-year-old daughter said, Daddy, smile. In all these movies about Jesus, Jesus never smiles. <laughs> I know that God is not one-dimensional. The second commandment, the second commandment is you shall not make any graven images of God. I think the reason for that was because any image you come up with to picture God is one-dimensional. And you'll end up worshiping one aspect of God and not the whole of God. I know that. You know that. But every one of us has a freeze-frame picture of God in our mind that guarantees the direction we face when we think about him. What parent in this room, when your children are asked to describe you, which of you would want them to remember the harshest moment in your experience? Wouldn't it be even worse if the harshest moment in your experience with your children was misunderstood and yet stood as their main guiding picture of you? These stories, Nadab and Abihu, Uzzah touching the ark, the fire coming down from heaven, Canaanites being warned of annihilation, Ananias and Sapphira falling dead. They all have contexts, every one of them. And if you think through your family history, you'll remember some sleepless nights, some difficult conversations, some truly awful experiences. And what if any one of those was the freeze frame image in your story's minds? in your children's minds, when they thought of you. I think it produces a lot of atheists and some really sad, really burdened, really anxious-oriented Christians. What are we supposed to make of the Jesus who says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? What are we supposed to make of the prophet who said a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. What about Jesus who says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly father know how to give good gifts to those who ask him? God is not described 
as an oppressive tyrant who delights in giving chores and settling scores. Worst of all is if people hear that from those of us who truly have been given the opportunity to know better. But what if we changed the way we see? What if we could choose healthier lenses through which we read all the stories of Scripture, through which we reframed all of our past experiences? You ever seen one of those YouTube videos with, uh, by Enchroma, the, the glasses for those who are colorblind? And they put them on, and for the first time, they begin to see everything in a brand new way. The whole world comes alive in a new way. Imagine for the first time seeing the rainbow in all of its splendor. Over the first time seeing the fall leaves as they change. You can feel the emotion welling up inside of you. And you can see the whole world anew. Maybe you've seen similar videos of deaf people after receiving a cochlear implant for the first time hearing their child say, Mommy. Hmm. There's no greater thrill than to witness a paradigm shift that blows open your world and ushers you in to the colors and sounds of the kingdom. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open to Exodus 34. And I want us to experience a paradigm shift. The Lord introduces himself to his people. Oh, they've heard stories. In fact, they've had experiences already. And which of those stories and which of those experiences are first in their mind is anyone's clue. So the Lord seeks to frame their experience. In Exodus 34, beginning in verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, Please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. There is no doubt that like every good father, he can be serious. He can be tough. Sometimes love must be tough. He's a God of holiness and justice. He's tough on crime, and he doesn't end his speech without saying that he doesn't clear the guilty. There is that. We won't end our series without talking about that. But that's not how he begins his introduction. And it's not even how Moses, in his response, wants you to leave your vision of God. 
what God does to those who don't want him, those who turn their back on him, those who refuse him, is hardly the message for a people who want him, who have turned their face toward him, and who diligently seek him. And to them, he says, the Lord. The Lord is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Which is a healthier lens for thinking about God? Option number one, if you mess up, if you fall down, if you make a mistake, if you start to doubt, if you don't hang on real tight, if we disagree, if you just aren't sure, then think about hell because that's probably where you're going. Or option number two, the Lord, the Lord knows we are dust. He knows what it's like to face temptation. He knows we don't always know which end is up and that we're tossed to and fro. He knows we're doing our best, and he knows our best is far less than perfection. In fact, our Lord is known for his mercy and his graciousness. And when God thinks about his people, he's slow to anger as a rule. His love is relentless, and it won't stop. And when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, you can take that to the bank because he is faithful. He's faithful. In fact, he keeps his steadfast love with his struggling children all over the world, and he delights, delights in you. Not just in those who measure up just right. No. Paul says that God showed his unlimited patience by saving me. Another way of saying that, God shows pictures to his angels in heaven of his kids. And he says, this one, oh, this one messed up royally. And I just love the look on his face when I said, I know it hurts you to fall short. And I want you to know that I love you and I forgive you. And I delight in forgiving you because I am love and love keeps no record of wrongs. I always trust and I always hope and my love for you will never fail. If God be for us, who can be against us? It's God who justifies who is it that condemns. That's in the Bible. Nothing can separate you from God's love for you, says God. Not your ugliness, not your ungodliness. Not your height, nor depth, principalities, powers, things going on now, even things coming what may. My love for you is as strong as a parent's love for their child. Why do we have this nagging need? to be told over and over again that we just might, we just might, we just might lose his grip. I know the Bible says, knowing the terror of the Lord, I persuade men. I can't help but think in context what he's getting at it's because I know what happens to those who aren't in Christ. I persuade people 
to become in Christ. I know that Paul says, I buffet my body daily and bring it into subjection, lest after I've shared the gospel with others, I myself might be a castaway. But notice again, what he's saying is, I do all I can to make sure I stay where I need to be, not I'm scared to death of where God is when he thinks of me. I know the New Testament says we must have a healthy fear of the Lord. It's, it's almost on every page. But that's because fear produces awe and faith. Healthy fear produces holiness and sanctification. Fear means a respect for his power, an obedience to his calling, a recognition that he will allow people to reap what they sow. But this morning, I'm talking to people who aren't sowing to the wind. I'm talking to people who are sowing to the Spirit. I'm talking to people who want Christ. And for people like that, the I'm so scared he might hurt me is no longer a driving force because 1 John says, perfect love casts out fear. For those who fear have not been made perfect in love. He's good. The God I'm talking about is the one who walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. The one who wants to smile with and cry with his people. The one who heard his children crying in slavery and got up and rescued them. The God who pulls his people out of Babylon. The God who wouldn't let a grieving mother in Maine go home without her boy. The God who took all my sins and griefs upon himself so I could become heir to the throne. That God delights in you. And he loved you when you had nothing to offer him. What makes you think that now in your struggles, he could love you any less? He couldn't love you more. And I want you to know that when you're kneeling at the edge of your bed, wondering what he thinks about you, when you struggle with the addiction that has taken you over, when you go right back to that sin that you promised you'd quit, when you make that unthinkable choice that you think will haunt you forever, my God says to you, there's nothing I want more for you than for you to experience my forgiveness, my compassion, my grace, and my love. And when you picture that God, I got news for you. The real God is even better than that. To sincere, earnest, lovely seekers after God who bravely gather this morning to sing the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, I tell you that God is here for you. Pick the name that God gave of Himself in Exodus 34, the one you're most in need of right now, and imagine it right before your name. Maybe it's forgiveness for Jim. Maybe it's compassion for Joanne. Maybe it's mercy for Susie. I'm here to tell you, God does forgive you, Jim. God does have compassion for you, Joanne. And God's mercy is new every morning, Susie.
Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguide.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.